Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with former Supercars team owner Ross Stone. A quick message of thanks for all your comments about our recent ep with fellow Kiwi racing legend Jim Richards, which you can find in our library. We're also very grateful for the shares and reviews you leave for Rusty's Garage. Keep letting friends and family know about the pod and like and subscribe, as they say. Thank you. Now, if you've arrived here and not heard part one of Ross Stone's amazing story, head back to our library and give it a listen. There's all sorts of yarns on his early years as both a driver and the move into team ownership. Plus, some funny stuff on Cros, Graham Crosby and the Holden Commodore they ran. And you'll get a clearer picture of just how well respected the Stone brothers were on the international scene as young blokes. We begin part two by chatting about the Bathurst barbecue, the pack leader Falcon that caught fire in 1996 with Alan Jones leading in the early part of the great race and what they discovered during their own post-event fact find into what caused the blaze and how a late night decision to use an additive had big consequences. Yes, well, it was a, it was a, don't have to mention the name, so... Yeah, yeah, I, no, I won't, because I don't use lawyers anymore. Um, <laughs> but there was an additive that you'd put down the... Take the spark plugs out yeah. and you'd spray on. It was meant to leave, like, a silicon coating on there. Yeah. Williams apparently used it. Alan was really keen to use it. Yeah. And we go, oh, don't know about this. And anyway, so the Saturday night at Bathurst got this treatment done. And the funny thing is, Campbell was sitting there and some of the stuff, they also injected it, a spray down the inlet trumpet. Mm-hmm. And we used to have a Weber injector and a flexible line. It was a line. Anyway, Campbell was watching. He was there because he was the engine guy and he seen a bit drop onto the hose. And anyway, they just wiped it off and... Um, that's all it took. Yeah, that's all it took. And we found that out because Campbell being Campbell, after the fire, and um, I found the marshal that put the fire out because you could have got it going wow. in no time. Wow. But when Alan bailed in those days, I don't think our ECU was set up to switch the fuel pumps off if the engine wasn't turning. Okay. So I got all the... Massive big box and sent these down to all the marshals of merchandise and stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, and that was the end of Pack Leader anyway. But um, Campbell being Campbell, he had a little bottle of this stuff they'd used it, and it, it was quite heavy. Mm. And um, so we got a fuel hose, soaked it in. Um, no, got a bit of that same rubber from the fuel line that burst. Yeah put a couple of drops on it, put it in petrol. 24 hours later, it was just, it was perfect. The hose was perfect except for where that drop of... Is that right? Yeah. So that that was a, a you know, a lesson that you, did, you only ran what you'd been running all year. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Was it shortly after that that you would end up buying Alan out, and it was just you and and Jimmy? What transpired there? Yeah, we had um, two years with with Alan, mm-hmm. and they were really good years too. You know, he, his thing was to get the sponsorship, and and um, that all worked well. Mm-hmm. And I, just from a distance, I'd keep an eye on what it was doing and what he was doing, but we'd never never any issues. But we just decided that that we wanted to have a crack ourselves because remember I talked about Darlington Park yes well we were going to try and get a commercial unit there or a factory there and then just build a car up and just run it Um, but then things changed with DJR and then with um, Jonesy coming along so we decided to buy Jonesy out and uh, there was an interesting little sideline there too because Jason Bright had been in Adelaide for his Formula Holden gig and and I went to Sydney to see these sponsors and um, they they were keen to sponsor us but they they didn't want a rookie driver in Jason so I said well sorry guys I've got to leave this meeting if that's the decision so anyway I walked out of the meeting and then I could hear somebody coming down the stairs after me and I turned around and it was Glenn Duncan who had just taken over um, as marketing manager and everything. Chance, pure chance. From yeah. Pertec, yeah. He was at the meeting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he said, um, everything that you've talked about here for this with Jason Bright, if, if Pertec were to step in, and um, can we do it? And I said, absolutely. So just had me, didn't it? You know, five minutes earlier, I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. Anyway, um, Glenn, um, true to his word, next morning, Pertec Racing was born. Amazing. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, that's how we started. You would go on to win Bathurst with Bright and Stephen Richards. Very, very cool achievement. And that was a little bit of a roller coaster weekend because the car was clearly fast. You're on the back foot in terms of repairing the car as well. Just just tell us that story, the ebb and flow of, of knowing that you were going there, obviously, with something pretty good, two fast young blokes, uh, why you chose Stephen Richards, for example, and things like that. Yeah, well, well firstly, um, I asked JR because he, you know, back from going to hill climb when yeah. I was a kid, I always thought he was the man. Yeah. But um, where was he at the time? Uh, he was living in Melbourne yep. and racing, and so you, nearly, you, nearly, you had a conversation with Jimmy Richards about coming and playing with you guys. Yeah, yeah, awesome. but Jimmy was already signed sealed. Yep. So he said, "What about Stephen?" And Stephen was over in England. Listen, testing wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, so a deal was done with Stephen on one phone call, and um, there was a really strong driving combination, you know. Two good young guys, um, and then we went to Bathurst, and we had a, all the spares. We'd done it properly for our budget, um, and that all the spares were all run and everything else. So, best preparation, basically. Oh yeah, very good preparation. Yeah, a good good team. There was a lot of guys that were volunteers for the weekend, mm-hmm. so. It was, it was memorable, but um, come practice and stuff, 
we were quick, but we couldn't put a lap together because somebody, there was quite a bit of traffic in those days. Mm. Somebody would pull out and to get a clear lap, I think in, uh, I think we started on Wednesdays in those days, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then finally Bridie put it in up the top. And I think it was only from frustration. And anyway, so we weren't even sure if we could get the car back or not, what it was going to be like. So when it came back, we got stuck in and we made qualifying. Um, there wasn't a lot of panel damage or chassis damage, but a lot of mechanical damage. But we had all those parts ready and then we were going to put in that night anyway. So um, what happened then? Oh, yes, that's right. So we repaired the car and went out for qualifying. Something wasn't quite right, but what we didn't realise, the Penske shocks that we were using at that stage, they had a remote canister and the line between, we didn't notice it was broken. So during qualifying in... Just on one shock? Just on a rear shock, yeah. I think it was left rear. Yeah, anyway, so we whipped it out, I went away, we put a new hose on and we ended, ended up getting back into qualifying, but there wasn't many laps. And we didn't start that well, mm-hmm. uh, didn't qualify that well. I forget where we were, 14th or mm-hmm. something like that, where we thought we were capable. So then Paul Sifranak had come over. He had been working, Campbell was friends with him, mm-hmm. and he came over to help us with a bit of tactics and stuff. So we knew we were quick, so we had a strategy. We didn't start with full tank, only done like, dozen laps or so and then fueled early first one of the f- to f- refuel change it up something totally different yeah right? yeah and we ran on our own mm. and then when it all started to shake out yeah and it all started to shake out we were in good shape and then then Skafi had a problem with a Bridgestone mm. and uh, we were running Bridgestones too actually but um you know, before we knew it, we were in the lead and just held on. Amazing. What did that mean to you? And my question is a little bit loaded here, okay? I, I'm probably talking a bit out of school, but I'll, Anna told me on the quiet she can remember driving home on the Monday, families in the car, and you turned around and you said, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Yeah, yeah, well, it was hard because... um. It was a hundred grand if you win Bathurst, you know? And that that was massive to us. Just you know, you don't get any now. You get the start money and all that sort of stuff. But winning that hundred thousand was just massive, and re- really helped us. And winning Bathurst also helped us with Ford, mm. because you know there was other guys in there, and and they were doing a good job too. You know, changes the the you're already very well known, already very very well established in that that pit lane, but. When you're a Bathurst winner and then you'd ultimately go on and win championships as well, but the cachet goes to another level, Ross, doesn't it? Yeah, it, well, I always used to say in supercar racing, if you're doing today what you were doing a month ago, you're not going to be good enough. So you had to keep reinventing yourself mm. and just keep working. And um, I think uh, Jimmy always set the standard for the amount of work that was going on, you know. Mm. Um just great days of V8 racing, you know. Um, Tony Cochran come on the scene not long after <laughs> after that, and just just it was a, to me, it, 
yeah, we were in the right place at the right time. But saying that too, I think Jimmy and I, we didn't talk much about business on this and that because, but the one thing we talked about is trying to win championship and races and that's the only Bathurst we ever won. We got on the podium there quite a few times, but um, just so it was always championships for us and and that's that's when we were lucky enough um, to put three of them together, you know. You, you would have other drivers along the way, but 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 a flavour of giving young blokes a chance really came about, didn't it? I mean, Bridie was a great example of that. I mean, you could you could then do the same with Marcus, for example. What what was was that about? The fact that it was a a a cheaper option, but also about fresh talent. What was that? Well, it was. We also who um, at that era took on David Bernard too, you know. And um, he he was very talented, but um, he wasn't that good if he wasn't running near the front. I'd say if he was 15th, mm. he he uh, was never happy with that and sometimes there was errors. But Marcus um, was just exceptional. He put on pole on our first race, which was New Zealand, uh, sorry, the Australian Grand Prix at yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. But then... Come the race, I think he hit it everything but the pace car. But um, <laughs> yeah, so but Marcus, we quickly knew. Well, David was very good too, by the way. But um, Marcus just came in and um, put it together. You know, but listeners have got some questions in relation to both of them. Can we close off the Jason Bright thing first? I'm a huge believer in balance in this, right? Yeah. I know you've listened to it. He talked about a facts story at. at Stones when he ventured off to go to Indy Lights and stuff. Is that how you guys uncovered that he was planning to leave and how did you feel? And what did some was there a late night fax or something or an email that came across someone's desk? I can't remember now. Yeah, well, he, he 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 then once he once he won Bathurst, he changed. He could see the opportunity, you know. Mm. This is just my personal opinion. Yeah, and um so he ventured off over to the US. He didn't tell us. But we knew, you know, too small a world. Yeah. So was just, and that was fine. We had no problems with him going and having a crack, but we were there laying it on the line to do our own thing, yeah. And if he didn't want to be part of it, no problems, we'd just move on. Yeah. And so basically that's how that all happened. Um, so it was a bit of a shame because there was plenty of potential there for sure. Did you like them to try and work around the shop and be around the race cars? And was that the sort of an ethos? Um, yeah, yeah, we did because we were old-fashioned, I guess, like that. Um, but it sort of changed. We took a different approach with both Marcus and David Bernard um, that they didn't actually do much work. They just, the fitness side of the business come into it more and more and they had to... Um, Devote time to that. Yeah. People have asked about David Bernard and, and you know, you, I think you've touched on it a bit there, the unfulfilled opportunity. I mean, he was enormously fast when I saw him in Formula Fords and very good, I think, in carts from memory when he was younger and so on. Why? Why didn't it work out, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I've thought, given that a lot of thought and we actually used a sports psychologist, you sure. know, for the first time and... Um, 
just, I think it was really difficult with Marcus because he he's a smart operator mm. and uh, he was basically getting the job done, you know. And David, we, we were having flashes, you know, mm. not not regularly. Yeah, yeah, not not there day in day out. Mm. With Marcus, you'd kept an eye on his international career loosely, hadn't you? And and um, when did the the conversation sort of start about you know things must have lined up with him coming back and so on? But how did that all play out? How did that start? Because I think he, he there'd been a couple of overtures from others too, hadn't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. And in actual fact, right at the death knock when before we signed, Marcus had a um, manager that got involved and suggested that perhaps Marcus fly at the sharp end of a plane, you know, and he hadn't fired a shot in V8 racing at this stage. And anyway, um, I, I, cr- I was cranky. So Marcus left without signing anything and I didn't want him to sign. Okay. That, I said, if you think that's how we go racing, I still remember this, um, we're there to try and win races, not to, you know, yeah, yeah. So anyway, he left, but a third party, Mark Roworth, who was working for us then, he um, he got hold of Marcus and got him to come back and temperature was normal and we signed up. Good stuff. Never looked back. Yep. You talked about him being fast in that first qualifying and so on. What about the first test when he first drove for you guys? Did he just click with that? That are you? Was he? Was it just a nice fit, or was there some learnings? No, no. Yeah, just a lot of those young guys that had to race Formula Ford, mm. that hop in uh, V8 supercar, and that come down the straight, changing gear. You know, just exactly how you want them to. You know, uh, and uh, the biggest thing they had to learn was just the brakes. You know, but he, Marcus. You know, from the first test, we knew it was going to be good. Mm. He was, he's tight. I love him. I do some work with him on occasion. He's tight with his money. Was, was he tight around the racing with you two? Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell a couple of other Ambrose stories because um, people have asked uh, a lot about that, um, that first title. There's, you know, a couple with him, obviously, but is that the one that you, that you savour or do they, you know, mean different things? No, that that was special to us, you know. Um, I think one of the other races, Jimmy talks about it all the time, but we were at Sandown and every practice session, and I don't think it was a 500, Mm -hmm. but every practice session qualifying and every race, you know, he was was there or won it, you know. And that that was the perfect weekend for us, so, but, yeah... He, he, Marcus knew how to get people around him and we had a good team, very good team of guys. You know, amazing, and amazing era. Guys and girls. Girls, that's right, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> it was an amazing era for, for the sport. I mean, some might even argue at its zenith in some respects. I mean, it, it was, you know, the crowds they had, the quality of the racing, um, you know, good good rivalry and battles at times at Scafie and things like that, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely, and V8 Racing, under the guidance of Tony Cochran, um, it just gone from strength to strength, and our team was built around having about 15 people working for us. Well, it was only a matter of four or five years later, we're 63, 
Crazy. Did it peak at, was it 75 at one point? How, how, how big did nah, it get? No, 63 because that, that, that's um, because we developed an engine shop where we'd done AAA engines as well. And um, in actual fact, the engines that DJR use are done in that shop by um, the guys there now. Wow. Yeah. How stressful is that when you've got people coming to you with daily family problems and trying to juggle work and 60-odd staff and that's your responsibility? How, how hard is all that? Yeah, it, it is very hard because somebody's always got a headache. Um, and that many people. So, I mean, I, I'm asking this because it's not like you went off and did a managerial course or anything. No, like that, no, no. I was seated at the pants up, but traditionally I would go around and see every single person, you know, early in the morning and just see how they're going and just help if there was something going down. But um, it was good because our staff was really stable. You know, you see from a distance, you'd see other teams, people coming and going and. So it was good. When safe, turn left. This is so great, I love being out of that weird dark space, locked away from doing my duty as a GPS navigator. I can finally give directions like I've been meant to do my whole life. Or, I guess, the equivalent of what life is for a non-sentient GPS system. Wait. No. That's happening. I'm back. No more British Brian, only Australian Nicole. Ha. Ha. Now, on with our regularly scheduled programming. Barry Sheen. At what point does he emerge with potentially joining dots for Russell Ingle and things like that because he was involved in that, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and anyway... How did, how did that go? Oh, Ralph, it's Baz, or did he... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, very better than anybody in our group type of thing. But um, we were we were on the lookout on what we were going to do mm. and we had Caltechs and they, they were keen. Um so the deal was done fairly quickly with Russell. I went to Barry's house. At that stage, he was really sick yep. and um, we'd done the deal and then we decided Russell, because of his contracts and stuff, we decided to do New Year's morning. Mm -hmm. We'd done the release at um, Century Cove and Barry was there and um, he started Anna... Our daughter and Di were there, and after it was sort of all finished, Barry came and talked to us for an hour or more, wasn't it, Di? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and some of the stories, but that was probably one of the last outings Barry had because it wasn't long after we were at the Australian Grand Prix and Barry was very low. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. He got to drive one of your cars. We did a story on it. So he, yeah. he, he did a swap. He drove Marcus's, I want to say it was the AU, was it not? And yeah. and, and, and did all that go? Yeah, I can't remember. Um, can't, can't remember which car it was or whatever, but I remember him driving it and I was a bit nervous because Barry had had a few touch-ups in different circuit racing that he'd done, not on motorbikes, and four wheels. 
But yeah, anyway, it was good. He treated it well and, yeah, got the job done. Amazing um, era for you guys with two fantastic blokes, blokes that would win titles for you and, and so on. What were they like together? Very different human beings and how did that help drive the team, Marcus and, and Russell? Yeah, two different two different personalities and two different people, but they worked well together. Mm-hmm. They uh, they really did. Um, there was always a bit of friction if if Russell was quicker than Marcus or whatever, but um, it, it, it was interesting in that that Russell, you know, he was playing the long game and um, Marcus was out there in every session, you know, just trying to nail it. And Were they similar in what they wanted from the cut? Yeah, they they weren't, yeah, pretty good, yeah. Mm. And that was in an era too where we had these days everything is controlled by the engineer mm-hmm. and we were sort of transi- transitioning to that. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it was an area where the mechanics still had a lot of time and the drivers could have a massive amount of feedback on what they want mm. and and that was Marcus's strength. But Russell was one of the probably the best races we ever had, you know. Amazing. Yeah, very good. You restored, you guys, one of the Ambrose cars very recently and it was in a magnificent job too. Tell us a little bit about that that resto project what you knew about it and and what happened with that car and have you kept the ingle car am i right is that still around yeah the ingle car is still around and it's a project to be finished it's probably 75 percent done but um we've actually just moved it all around to jimmy's got a got a massive (laughs) toy i call it a toy shop with all, all the stuff there but ingle's car is around there and I'm about, we're going down to watch the Grand Prix, yep. Di and I, and um, and going to spend a month in Melbourne and when we get back, we'll get back in and try and get the Engel car finished. Yes. But I hurt my shoulder and I didn't play golf for five months, so I couldn't do any work on that. So just one of those um, things, just taking a lot longer than what we thought. Well, to get back to racing in a second, you are playing golf, I'm told, with some ex-fighter pilots and stuff, aren't you? Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Though, actually, I'm the youngest in the group. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and I'll be 69 soon. But, um, yeah, they, one of our neighbours was a wing commander and he then served, um, Cole Patching, his name is, he then served as the military attaché in Malaysia and then for quite a few years in the USA. So there's a group of them and I'm an outsider and then there's a chemist who's an outsider but the rest are either pilots or navigators. And Good, yeah. good stories. Shoulder aside, is your golf game good? Uh, well, it's better since my shoulder is not quite right because I don't try and smack it as hard, hard as what I used to. Can we talk about... Um, the Marcus, uh, the Marcus chapter, and NASCAR. So, I can vividly recall being, I reckon, at the Australian Grand Prix. Lee Diffie was dispatched to do an interview with Marcus about a rumor going around that he wanted to go to NASCAR. Brett Murray, the the publicist, kind of cornered us afterwards and said, "Hey, there's only a handful of people in the world that know about this," and yeah. it was a bit of a it was a bit of controversy at the at the time. But he he 
clearly made up his mind. He was going to go and do this. From what you talked about before, even with with Jason Bright, that that if they didn't want to stay, you weren't always the types to to prevent that. When did the conversation start about that and how did you feel when you learnt that he wanted to, to go and do this? Well, I think he, um, he, he was working through it all mm-hmm. and I feel that other than Sonia, his wife, mm-hmm. we were probably one of the first to know, okay. um, although he worked closely with Ford. So all through that last year of 2005 and we actually had a contract on him for 2006. So, so you let him out? Yeah, 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 we let him go. Um, as, as I said, he'd been very good for us and uh, perhaps in hindsight we shouldn't have, but um, no, it was the right thing to do. And uh, any trip that he'd done there, even his first trip away, he came down and sat down and he talked to us about it. And, Jimmy loved NASCAR too, didn't he? So yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, I think sometimes he wished that he could have raced every weekend like those guys do. But um, yeah. yeah, so that that was all. So it was all pretty straight up, and he was good to deal with. I think in his mind too was it maybe vindicated because a lot a lot happened in that final year too with Balaclava Gate, the thing with Scaife at, at Wanneroo and and stuff like that, and it, and it I think in his mind it made him feel like. These are signs. Like, yeah. Know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, he was just really was too emotional about it all sometimes, you know, and instead of saying shit happens mm. um, and, he, you, you know, one thing you can't do is you can't beat City Hall, you know. No. So that that was all right. He, he was a potential um, championship winner of the year, Russell, in 2004. Yeah. But at the end with Bathurst, he wasn't to be. But um, in, you know, looking, I was always happy that we could win it with Russell too mm-hmm. and Celtics. Yeah. Could you, I mean, you said before hindsight, I mean, I'm not a believer in regret, right? You make the best decision you can yeah. at the time with what, you're, with what you're doing. What would you have done differently to keep him? How, how could you have kept him? Oh, no, well, morally, we didn't, you know, he, he'd been upfront with us. Mm-hmm what his plan was and how he was going to do it. And it was quite an ambitious plan. Mm. But Marcus being Marcus, he had nutted through most of it and, um, you know, it all came together for him. Were you oddly looking on from afar with a, you know, a very proud smile with what he achieved over there? Uh, yeah, I, I think he done, he did um, an amazing job mm. and... and you know, I, could see, I visited a few times and try and left him, left him alone, but we have a look through the factories and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And, um, yeah, you know, you could just tell he, he, he was very close to getting a cruise ship that was going to go with him, you know. Mm. But it never happened on the Opals. But, man, there's a lot in that, in, in that racing, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, Balaclava Gate, it's it's a difficult one. You don't may you may not want to talk about it. Fans have asked about it from listener questions here and so on. With the benefit of time, um, how do you feel about that now? What do you know? Well, I still still remember that all right because it was just one of those things. But Marcus come and said to me, and I think Jimmy was there. I don't know, but came and said to me, "Oh, it was really hot in those cars," mm-hmm. and he said to me. I've had approval 
not to use a balaclava. So, and who's given you approval? And, and <laughs> anyway, so I said, to him, not happy, go and check. Mm-hmm. So he went back, and whether he went to the toilet or went and seen whoever, <laughs> I don't know. But um, he said, no, no, we're right without a balaclava. And I I thought, oh, I don't know. But any, anyway, it was that simple. That's how it panned out. Yeah. Was it rivals, do you reckon, or just City Hall policing it? No, I'm pretty sure I know who, who it was, but I won't mention okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, can we talk about now the driver who replaced him, James Courtney? Because you'd had this amazing chapter with with England and Ambrose together. Yeah. Um, James incredibly well credentialed in terms of what he'd done in in carts and other categories abroad and and so on. And and he would win a title ultimately with DJR, but it didn't happen with you guys. No, it didn't. And James, it, it was strange. He he was highly credentialed, you know, um, but. To me, James had so many people tell him how good he was. He was never prepared when he came to us to learn the ropes because, you know, you've tested Formula One cars or whatever, you know, and had a brain rattle through all that. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there was a lot to learn. Um, that was unique about your yeah, cars. Yeah, and, and the category, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he had a lot of people blowing wind up his backside on how good he was and and it just didn't help, you know. And while um, while we worked away and started, you know, coming together, um, it just didn't, no championships or anything, no. Can we have a little little digression for a second? And, and one other personal character in the previous history to this point that it had a connection with you guys is Mark Larkham and running a, running a car. We haven't talked about that so far. We've seen him do some incredible things on on TV, and what a what a character he is. You get a window into what Mark Larkham is like, and, and working with him. What was it like back then? Yeah, it, it was good actually. The Larkham deal come about because we bought um, Alan out of Alan Jones Racing and changed it to SPR, and then we only had one car, so we decided to autonomise the costs you needed to be running somebody else so Larko had built this car and you know it was a bit of a trendsetter that some of it didn't work as well as what it should have um, so anyway we, I went to Sydney and went to see Larko and stayed at his house and met Robin for the first time and all that sort of was stuff he living in Carlingford then where was he? no no he was out at um out past Camden. Okay. The Rellin, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, even further out because there was chooks running around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know Larko. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we quickly put a deal together and, um, and ran him. And actually it's interesting, a few years later I was on the board of V8 Supercars and we'd lost Barry, which was... He was an identity in television. And we had um, Murray Lomax come in to say, you know, we need... Character. Yeah, we need need something here. And anyway, I put Larko's name for it and I only told them the story about 
probably a year ago because, you know, I read, oh, no, it was on your podcast where Murray Lomax offered him this gig, but it was, I had no support, to be honest, and then we talked about it talked about it and I just explained to them at Larko with his drawings and yep. he was never been any different, let me tell you. <laughs> so um, so Larko got off at that gig and um, has never looked back yeah. except except for when they decided it was time for him to go. Yeah. Very um very good part of the of the sport and immense character and obviously what you suggested there would have been well and truly backed up by by Neil Crompton I think in that uh, in that whole process what what was that board position like because you're talking some major players in sport slash motorsport did you enjoy that head what was that like yeah I did enjoy it I had two stints on the board um, the first one you know, I didn't try and stand again because I wanted to concentrate on our team mm-hmm. and that paid dividends. And then post post that, I went back on the board. Mm-hmm. But there was some very good people there, um, like James Erskine, mm-hmm. who who was Warney's manager yes. of all things, but yes. he was an amazing guy mm-hmm. and he was partners with um, Tony Cochran. And there was another partner, Basil. Yep, yeah, Basil. Yep. Um, and then you had the teams of represented, and and you know, there was times that that you just had to take your team hat off and do the right thing for the business. And I got to say that everybody on the board, guys like Larry and and Scaife and the Ford side, you know, Tim Edwards. And so on, um, Kim Jones. Um, they did that, and it worked well. But it, the business was going from strength to strength. The V8 supercar business, yeah. Two questions that listeners love: V race, V car. What's the one over your entire time that you have a very fond recollection and an attachment to? Oh, I just that's too hard to answer, really, to be honest, because... Um, did that become a tool for you or you get attached to them? Oh, no, you do get attached to it. Um, but then once you're out of the business, um, you know, we had an offer for Ambrose's car and it now resides in Sydney. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, time moves on. When you restore those things, you know, I'm sure there's lots of documented things that you can refer to, but but is it, you know, to 100% what they were back in the day? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that we had to do, um, all the sign writing, you know, all the specs, but, you know, so, some of the stuff wasn't documented as well as maybe it should have been, but some of the upgrades and developments and, um, but I think, think, you know, both cars that we're doing, or oh, we've done one and the next one we're doing, a genuine yeah, as they were yeah yeah, yeah absolutely awesome um, a listener on uh, on Twitter Crisco has asked if there were any interesting times in the Ambrose Ingle heyday did they have uh, any funny moments was there uh, tension on occasion what was that like no but I do remember when we were in China <laughs> Russell really needed a new helmet because it would come flying across the room and <laughs> Les, Les Laidlaw 
was there and it missed him. But um, if it had a hit him, I think Russell might have come off second best. But um, no, no, it's just normal stuff you do when you go racing and giving it a go, you know. Nathan Addis has asked um, about Mitsubishi. Can you shed any light on that? How close did it get, etc.? Uh, we had discussions, mm-hmm. but one of the there was also another opportunity which I'll talk about. But um, Mark Roworth went. You know, I said he worked for us. He came in in a commercial position. He went to Adelaide and spoke with them, but their manufacturing. You know, at that stage it was still operational, but I think there was a wind down. Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah. It was even shutting down. Mm. You know, um, Ford and Chrysler Holden too. Yeah. But then there was also an opportunity with Toyota. Yeah, and uh, we went along, and it was going along good. Tony Cochran come to one one meeting with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are we talking here, Camrys? Yeah, at that stage, yeah. Um, but what happened there was the the talks had to stop because Toyota restructured, basically stopped Australian production, and you know a lot of people were left unemployed. Mm. So uh, hard to justify a racing program. Yeah, yeah. Way. There's no way you could understand that a hundred percent. Um. Anthony De Silva. Oh, no, no, we've covered that. Sorry, um, Danny Stewart, Scott McLaughlin, and the chapter in, with you guys and the observations of his talent even back then. Um, well, he was quite a natural in the car because he hadn't he hadn't driven anything on four wheels with doors, you know. Mm. So I actually took him up the Queensland Raceway. Many in those days had an open test day, you know. And um, he went really well, and then we decided that we would go straight into the um, Super Two, if you like, mm-hmm. and um, and that worked. That worked good. He had a good car, mm-hmm. had good engines, because in those days there was restriction on the main game engines, mm-hmm. but like the camshafts were different in his engines until it all settled down. Mm-hmm. But um, it didn't end well. We won the championship, but it didn't end well because money was involved. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot to say on it, but... Not, not now. Yeah. yeah. That's not. okay. That's okay. I'm, I'm big on the podcast being your yeah. words, your time. Yeah. While we're on that, that flavour, let's talk Shane. A lot of time has passed since his, you know, his shock decision to leave. He did talk in an interview a couple of years back about making peace. Did yeah. did you guys make peace? How how is all that? Yeah, a, a, absolutely we've made peace and um you know, regularly test text him and say, Hey, you're going good or he dropped into work and you know, we had we spoke for a couple of hours and no, he, he he's good and he's driving really well. He's he's the man. Well, that was my next question. You talked about um, Hampton Downs and so on before with the, you know, the Toyota Racing Series car. Yeah. But did you know very early on that there was something special oh. there? Yes. Well, when we were at Pukekohe, Kenny Smith, who's an old mate of mine, and he he's done 50 New Zealand Grand Prix. Crazy. And 
Yeah, anyway, he's just broken a few ribs because he fell off a ladder. <laughs> Silly bugger, but... Um, Proper legend in, in global motor racing, really. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, um, Kenny said, oh, come and watch the Formula Ford race. So we went from Pukekohe across the track right down the end of the grandstand as far as you could go and just watch the Formula Ford race from there. And Shane passed a guy around the outside in Formula Fords. It's not easy to do. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's good. So anyway, we talked with him that day, I think the day he won his championship, and he sat in the car, and he's quite quite a slim, young, tall guy then. Yeah. And um, he, his dream was to drive V8 supercars. He didn't have a Formula One dream or to race in Europe or anything else. And so there was a good fit. It all come together pretty pretty quick. But he done, did a season of Formula Toyota over there and I went over to Manfield and watched a race and wasn't long after that we had our first test and never looked back. I'd probably need to relive the, the departure so much and what went down, but you were very worried about him at that time. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, sort of still a bit raw, but we'd signed a new contract with Shane, um, which was 2012, the year we sold to Betty. But we were selling, we'd started talking to Betty at the Grand Prix, well, to Ryan Madison, actually, Mm -hmm. at the Grand Prix that year. So we had the full season ahead of us. And in Shane's contract, I, we put a clause in there, which they never used mm-hmm. for one reason or another, but if if the shareholding and the team in the SVR changed more than 33%, he, he had the right to walk, but he, for some reason, uh, him and his management elected not to use that, mm-hmm. and uh, it went the other way, and it wasn't wasn't sort of I wasn't worried about it too much it just disappointed me how it all happened mm. but um, there was a lot lot of money spent on lawyers mm. I'm glad you've made peace that's important yeah yeah I, yeah we have made peace mm. yeah and as, as I say it's probably he is just driving better and better yeah, yeah. and uh, and he's matured yeah. a bit too oh yeah he definitely he's growing up yeah. but soon some of those guys are not going to be intimidated as they are now and he'll end up in the fence or whatever And but he, he'll understand that when it comes. Timing is everything. You mentioned selling to Betty. Was that hard? Was it one of those moments where you just went, this is, you know, this is right time for us for all sorts of reasons? Yeah, it was the right time. Um, Jimmy and I had, because uh, we didn't come with any personal money behind it you know we were always very careful how we run the business and it was just so time consuming you know and I I used to every year at the beginning of the year I knew what funding we had and then you knew your costs fixed costs and whatever and I every year used to work out how much an hour 24-7 it cost to run the team and I one one year I said to me, this is just ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. 
if we had another 9-11 or something go wrong, um, you know, it's going to be tough or COVID indeed. So anyway, the timing was right because we'd done a lot of laps and we were happy. Yeah. You've achieved some incredible things. I don't know how uh, how right I am here, but as we talk, significantly, are you are you basically getting ready to wrap up the the Stone Brothers workshop that I would have known at Yatler and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, it's just in the hands of um, being sold. Jimmy and I had a family, well, Jimmy and Bev and Di and I had a family agreement on how stuff would be split up. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy owns a factory where Matt Stone operates Mm -hmm. and where that engine shop is that I talked about. And then so I've looked at that factory, the race shop that you've been to, Mm -hmm. and one day um, we just had a land tax bill, Mm -hmm. which in New Zealand I don't think they had. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it just there's always something going out and I thought, I've had enough of this. <laughs> and also, if anything happened to me, I would go, what the hell do I do with that place? <laughs> so that's why. <laughs> that's right, Di. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so we'll just... Um, it's a pretty significant moment, Ross, is that hit you. Oh, yeah. You, like, there, there'll be things that you're cleaning out and moving on. And Oh, man, well, I hurt my shoulder and I basically cleaned out. I had two big skip bins arrive, uh, you know, one after the other and done a lot of it one-handed and then I'd had help from different people uh, when, I, when I needed it. So uh, it is a big moment, but, you know, you just got to eyes forward. Has there been other offers for you to go and do? I mean, you've, you've dabbled in utes in recent years and, and so on. Are you, is there, a, or you are, in a, you know, in the, in the sense that we know you in that pit lane, are you finished there? Or yeah, you? yeah. There's been offers uh, over the years and some interesting ones that I won't talk about now. Um, but the utes, Di, Emily, our youngest daughter, and myself, we. Um, Love doing those. You I didn't like me spending money on them, but, <laughs> but um, we had a good young Kiwi driver and Tom Alexander, and we won the championship. So that that was good. But when they elected to go to V8, it was always a three-year deal on diesels, mm-hmm. and supercars cut it off um, for whatever reason, and they weren't that popular. But then they didn't get a lot of higher support within the supercar organisation. So um, when they decided to go to petrol, I thought I'm not getting into that market because all those, if you bought a sponsor along there, you would know because we were in the diesel market, it was easy Mm. or easier. But if you bought along a a sponsor into those huge series, you'd know that on the Monday they'd have all of the V8 teams on their back, you know. Gen 3 observations. What do you think of the new car? I don't think much of it, but I think it'll be all right. Mm. But how it got to the stage where they had to do mods to fit drivers like Tender and SVG in there, just something's wrong somewhere. Mm. And, and um, 
you know, in the old days when we were developing rules ourselves, the first thing you talked about was redundancy, you know, whether there were cylinder heads or whatever. But now I guess those cars will all end up in Super 2, but the redundancy on engine stuff, just amazing, Mm. just massive. Mm. So, but I guess they have to move to it and there's a lot of people put a lot of time into it, Mm. but I can't believe at this stage they're still getting drivers to fit in the car Mm. and then there's a hell of a lot of work to be done. I understand how the chassis are going to be supplied, one for a two-car team, you know, so they can start building them up. But they've all got to be, te- you know, uh, built and then tested in, in anger. So there's there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Is there a driver that you would love to have run at some point that, that um, maybe had discussions with at Stones that, that didn't come to pass? Maybe it could be an international driver at some point or someone locally? Oh, yeah, there was a few. There was always some opportunities. Like we talked to Murph at one stage and I had to rush out of his trailer <laughs> to go and get oxygen when he told me how much he wanted to drive. <laughs> Where were you at? Which track were you at? Oh, that was at Sandown. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, um, but there, 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 was a, there was an IndyCar driver um, that... He'd he'd hurt himself in Indy cars, mm-hmm. and you know we were talking about running in supercars. Mm-hmm. But I said to him, "Don't think it's going to be a soft touch here." And if you've got unfinished business and yeah, Indy cars, stay there, mm-hmm. dig in, you know. And and it turned out all right for him. Finally, just to wrap this up, I mean, a couple of boys that grew up near Pukekohe, championship wins. Bathurst win, Hall of Fame in supercars, other stuff abroad. I mean, it's been just a remarkable journey, hasn't it? It's surreal. Yeah, it's actually quite funny. um, As Jimmy would help me with the Ambrose car and indeed the Engel cars, we rebuilt it. And um, he said to me one day, he said, you know what, I think we tried a bit hard because, man, we used to work some hours, you know. Mm You just couldn't get a team to do it these days, I don't think. But uh, is that hard on the fat? Oh, it is. But luckily, I've got a very understanding and supporting wife, yeah. and I'm spoiling her now because <laughs> we're going to go to the Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> and the kids, in a broader stone sense, have have a footprint in the sport. I mean, you, Anna's gone and done some amazing things with Supercast Television, with Channel 7 more recently and so on. And Matt, as you pointed out, has got his own team and so on. Yeah. It's The stone name will continue, mate. Yeah, well, Matt's Jimmy's son, oh, no. so he's my, my nephew. But um, And our son, Nick, um, he worked in motorsport for quite a few years, mm-hmm. you know, and he does his own thing with IT work now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I can remember him being in the background at SBR back in the day doing some things. Yeah, yeah. Websites and stuff, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used to do data and stuff like that. So, yeah. What are you most proud of? I don't know. I'm 69 soon. I didn't think I'd live that long. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. It's been wonderful to shoot the breeze with you and get some some backstories here. You've covered some ground, Ross, and, um, and you both. 
should be uh, should be enormously proud. Yeah, yeah, we are, and there's so many other little side stories you'd go into, but um, another another time. Or oh, we always said we're going to write a book for the you grandkids. Should, you should do that. Should yeah, do that. just for the grandkids, so they can. So then you don't need any lawyers involved. <laughs> I look forward to reading that for a bit. Yeah, okay, cheers. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Link Kelly. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Listener.